So Mike was working in his office. It was a normal day. Nothing seemed different. And he was meeting with people, helping them process life when all of a sudden his door was kicked open and three men dressed in black looked at him and said, you need to come with us and you need to come now. Mike wasn't sure if he knew the men because they were masked, but there was something familiar about them, something familiar about their voices. Mike immediately got up, left his office, and headed outside with them, and there in the parking lot was a Chinook helicopter waiting for them. Mike asked, what is this all about? We are on a special mission to get you, they said. You are safe now. They then handed Mike papers that invited him into the new mission, and the helicopter took off with all of them inside. Well, Mike woke up pretty quickly after that dream, and everything in him knew he was safe, and that he could trust God in the midst of an invitation to transition into something new. Mike had that dream about six years ago. It was specific. It was necessary. And it was clear. And it brought clarity to our family on what Mike needed to do about the job he was in. See, Mike needed to be rescued. And God heard his cry. God heard the cry of our hearts. And God knew exactly what needed to happen when. Well, friends, we're in our sixth week of the Jesus Story series. And just a reminder, we have been using this beautiful Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible. We have even more. We have ordered so many of these. So it's been so fun how many people keep buying them. So if you don't have one, we're asking for a $10 donation. It's okay if you can't do that because this is worth it. This is worth a buy. Like, this is a good buy. Even as an adult, I love this Bible. The other thing we have are these beautiful bookmarks that Jenny made. If you're just looking for even the pathway of what we're going through, because we're looking at that thread of Jesus all through the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, these two are wonderful. And today we're going to focus in on Moses. And in this Jesus Storybook Bible, there are at least three stories of Moses. We're only covering one. You can say thank you, or we would be here all night. So we're covering one, and it's God to the rescue, but we wanted to make sure that you knew that there are more stories about who Moses is and what God was doing in Moses' life. But today, it's God to the rescue. Sometimes it's hard for us to see and understand, but God has always had a rescue mission in mind. Ever since Adam and Eve took that fruit and took a bite The Old Testament is actually full of one rescue mission after another. And if we were going to rename the Bible, like if we had the authority, maybe we should do it right now. I wonder if it should actually be named the greatest rescue of all time. And then the ending could be the surprise rescue of Jesus coming back to life. Because this rescue, although included death, invited us into more life. A rescue is something that we always celebrate. It's something that we always admire. It leaves people in awe. And the greatest rescue of all time does not disappoint. For Moses and the Israelites, God's chosen people, it was specific and it was necessary. They had been crying out for years for help because they had been mistreated and enslaved and in desperate need of freedom. It was in that moment that God spoke. 
Exodus 3, 7, 8, and 8 say, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians, to lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. God's rescue plan was like none other. Partially because Pharaoh was like none other. Pharaoh was rude, crude, and unpredictable. Pharaoh wasn't going to just let God's people go, and unfortunately, Pharaoh didn't actually care if Moses said that he had heard from the Lord because Pharaoh truly believed his many gods could definitely beat one God, the one true God that Israel always talked about. While preparing for this message, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was that different commentaries and different theologians and different Bibles call these things, the plagues, something different. Some of them are the same. Some of us have always only heard the plagues. But others have been called disruptions or warnings. Or one of my favorites was the wonderful deeds. Because each thing that happened left people in awe and wonder. They were sent as a warning. These wonderful deeds got worse and worse and worse, and each wonderful deed was specific for the rescue mission. And they showed just how powerful God was in comparison to the Egyptian gods. So I want us to look specifically at each plague. Because I don't know about you, but I didn't realize that each plague defeated a very specific God. Plague one, water into blood. This plague immediately turned the Nile into blood after Aaron's staff touched the water. The water stayed this way for seven days and nothing within the, the river survived. This plague defeated the Egyptian God of the Nile. Plague two, frogs. This plague, as we saw, there were frogs everywhere. Nothing and no one was immune to this plague. So Pharaoh called his magicians and asked them to help get rid of all the frogs. But none of them could. None of them could defeat the Egyptian goddess of fertility, water, and renewal. That is what God was trying to conquer. Because that goddess was portrayed to have a head of a frog. Plague three, lice or fleas. This plague, Aaron hit the earth with his rod and immediately the dust was turned into lice or fleas. You decide, in a moment you'll understand why, because they covered all people and animals. Again, the magicians were unable to help. And at this point, the magicians looked at Pharaoh and said, this has to be the Israelites' God. The one true God has to be strong enough. This plague defeated the God of the earth. After plague three, the plagues only hit the Egyptians next, while God's chosen people stayed safe and unaffected. Plague four, the flies. This plague had swarms and swarms of flies. Are, flags, are flies a nuisance to any of you? If they are, raise your hand. Yeah, how many of you have fly swatters? I live in a house that has a lot of fly swatters. Anyways, they were a nuisance, but they were also destructive. 
The plague and the ones that followed brought a whole new level of consequences to Pharaoh's refusals. This plague defeated the Egyptian god of creation, movement of the sun, and rebirth. Plague five, livestock and cattle. This plague killed all the livestock and all the cattle. But first, this plague was given as a warning with hope that there would be repentance, that there would be an acknowledgement of the wrong that had been happening to the Israelite people. This plague began to break down their economy, their sources of food, their transportation, their agricultural industry, and their trade markets. This plague defeated the goddess of love and protection, who was depicted to have a cow's head. Plague six, boils and sores. God instructed Moses to throw ashes into the air, and wherever those ashes landed would turn into boils and sores. This plague affected the Egyptian people and their animals. This plague defeated the goddess of medicine and peace. Plague seven. There was another warning given with this plague right before it happened. And again, there was hope that maybe Pharaoh would recognize his ways and how they were affecting God's people. But Pharaoh ignored the warning. And hail came down and destroyed. This plague defeated the goddess of the sky. Plague eight. Locusts. This plague took care of all the things that the hail did not destroy. Anything that was survived by the hail was now no longer there. The locusts came and consumed all things that were edible, which left the Egyptians with nothing to eat and no way to survive. This plague still didn't change Pharaoh's heart, though, but it did defeat the god of storms and disorder. Plague nine, three days of darkness. This plague's actually more like a prophetic word. It was a warning. If you don't change now, there will be death. There will be judgment. There will be hopelessness because the future has nothing else for you. This plague defeated the sun god. The final plague, the one that we all saw, the one that actually started Passover, was the death of the firstborn son. Pharaoh was not only a king, but to the Egyptians, he was a god. And he was the greatest of all the Egyptian gods. And they worshipped him as a god. The Lord told Moses to warn Pharaoh again. And the Lord said, At midnight I will pass through the heart of Egypt. All the firstborn sons will die in every family in Egypt. From the oldest son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the oldest son of his lowliest servant girl who grinds the flour. Even the firstborn of all the livestock will die. Then a loud wail will rise throughout the land of Egypt, a wail like no one has ever heard before or will ever hear since. But among the Israelites, it will be so peaceful that not even a dog will bark. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. 
all the officials of Egypt will run to me and fall to the ground before me. Please leave, they will beg. Hurry and take all your followers with you. Only then will I go. Then burning with anger, Moses left Pharaoh. The Israelites were quick to listen to Moses and Aaron. And they made sure they were ready. They made sure they had the unblemished lamb or goat. And they slaughtered it at twilight just as they were instructed. The Israelites were then to put the blood on the doorpost as a sign that the Lord should pass over their house. They are God's chosen people. They listened. They heard. They were prepared. But ultimately, this plague was defeating Pharaoh. And immediately, the Israelites were asked to leave. And they did just that. God to the rescue. God the rescuer had a rescue plan that was specific, it was necessary, and it brought the exact clarity that the Israelites needed so that they would no longer be in the bondage of slavery anymore, but they would be free and free indeed. God loves to be specific. Can I be honest? That was a hard line for me to write. If you don't know, if you can't tell, I actually write my whole message out. And that was a hard line for me to write. Because sometimes God feels so mysterious. But God loves to be specific. And as I wrote it, the Lord kept reminding me of more and more events in my life that he was specific with the rescue. He was specific with the love. And God knows exactly what's necessary in the exact moment so that we can understand and follow through with his plans. Okay. So, we jump to the end of that video, right? But we missed a huge part. It's the part really many of us know and have thought about. And when Moses comes onto the scene after he has killed a slave, because I don't know if you remember all of Moses' story. I did wonder at one point if we should watch The Prince of Egypt, but thought, let's not do that. We'll do a message. But in Moses' story, he actually is Hebrew. He is an Israelite. But to protect him, his mom let him into the Nile River and an Egyptian pharaoh's daughter picked him up and adopted him. So Moses grew up adopted as an Egyptian, but was actually Hebrew, an Israelite. And in this moment, we see that God calls out to Moses in a bush that let's know is not dead, because I kind of think that story makes it a little bit looked at. It was very alive. It is flaming. It's burning. And all of a sudden, God says, Moses, Moses. Because Moses is captivated by this burning bush. That's not dead. And Moses approaches the bush, and God says, take your shoes off. Because you are on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And when Moses heard this, he covered his face. He was afraid to look at God. I've heard this story, and I've read this story, 
And I, we've read this story to my kids a lot. In the line of all of these passages for today that stuck, out, that stuck out to me the most was that Moses covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. For the longest time when I would read this story and I would hear different people speak on this story, they would so often talk about how Moses, out of reverence, would cover his face. And I think that's true. But I want us to keep going in the story because I actually wonder if the fear is that and something else. See, because in this moment, God was actually commissioning Moses. God was looking at Moses, and if this was the medieval era, imagine God pulling out his sword and saying, Moses, you get to be me to my people. Moses, you have all the authority to declare what's going to happen and how I'm going to release my power. Moses, I need you to represent who I am in my kingdom. So God was commissioning Moses into this moment. And Moses comes immediately with objection. All the authority, all the power from God was given to Moses. But Moses, out of fear, begins to say these different objections. Moses' immediate response is, but I'm a nobody. Why would Pharaoh ever want to listen to me? And God quickly reassures Moses and says, but Moses, I will be with you. I will use you. We will bring the Israelites out of slavery. And then Moses immediately comes back again and says, but what if they don't believe me? What if the Israelites don't believe me? What if they want to know who I am? What if they want me to prove that you were the one that sent me? Then God shares, tell, me, tell them that I am sent you. Yahweh. To the Hebrew people, God's chosen, the Israelites, Yahweh is a very specific name. I am is a very intentional name. It would be like me, which I'm about to say, me in front of my friends saying, my parents, my mom used to call me Junita. That's a very specific name that my mom would say to me endearingly. So when the Israelites say Yahweh and God is approaching them in that way, it is a very relational name that only the Israelites would know. So God's saying, you tell them my special name that only they know and the only ones I've told. Yahweh, I am. I, the creator, the relational one, the one who has committed himself to relationship with his people from the beginning of time, I am the one who is and was and will continue to be throughout all generations. I am. Moses, tell them that I am sent you. 
their personal, relational God. Their God that won't humiliate them. Their God that does rescue. Their God. Their one true God. Moses, though, has one final objection. After getting the inside scoop and the special name, after being promised that God will be with him, Moses has an objection that actually probably feels the most real to me, the most authentic. It's the objection that I'm sure has a story behind it. Moses protested, but what if they don't believe me? What if they won't listen to me? What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? Yahweh, I am the Lord, the personal rescuer, has commissioned Moses, empowered Moses, spoken purpose and life to Moses. But instead of listening to the clear, specific, necessary voice of that rescuer, Moses turns to fear. I can turn to fear. If I'm honest, my number one thing that I probably turn to is fear. It's the thing that stops me. It's the thing that makes me do silly things. It's the thing that clouds God's voice when that's the true one. I also wonder how many of us are like that. How often does the rescuer invite us into something and he's literally commissioning us and he's looking at us and knighting us to go do the things he's asked us to do, but then fear, that fear, he is a liar. The one who wrote the greatest story of all time has a commissioning for each one of us. He wants us to share about who God is and what he's done for us and in our lives. And he wants us to tell everyone why he matters to us. Fear. He is a liar. Fear can stop us from doing that Bible study at school. Fear can stop us from going and helping someone who needs help across the street. Fear can stop us from praying with a coworker. Or all of a sudden, I don't know if this happens to you, but this seems to happen to our family a lot. Where we're like in a store or in a restaurant or in a coffee shop, and all of a sudden whoever's helping us starts sharing their whole life story. Fear can stop me in that from doing anything with that story. When God might actually be putting that person in your life in that moment so that you get to tell him. I get to tell him about the rescuer, about the one that sees, that's specific, that loves and is relational. See, love is a greater motivator than fear. And we see it, right? Because at the exact same time that God told the Israelites to slaughter the lamb and put all the blood on the doorpost so he knew who to pass over, Jesus laid himself out on the altar for us so that we would put his blood on the doorposts of our heart so that we could have eternal life with him forever and ever and ever. 
Jesus is the eternal lamb for us, the greatest rescuer, the greatest rescue plan, who then conquers death. Jesus is not a liar. Jesus is intentional. He's specific. He's necessary. He has the greatest rescues in mind at all times for each one of us. And it doesn't just stop when we accept Christ. Jesus cares. He always has, and he always will. So I thought today to end our time, we always end in worship, right? It's so great. I love ending our services in worship. But today we're going to end in worship praising the name of Jesus, our rescuer, worshiping the great I am, declaring the king of kings. But this is what I wonder for us today. I understand... All of us worship differently, so I'm not, trying to, I'm not saying anything about how everyone worships. But each one of us might need a rescuing, or we know someone that needs a rescuing. And sometimes when we worship, we are like surrendering all to God. But I wonder today if when we lift our hands, it's actually us declaring to the Lord, I need you, my rescuer, to fill my life at all times. I had this picture while we were worshiping earlier of literally God being like, yes. Yes, and grabbing people's hands and saying, yes, thank you for calling me rescuer. Yes, I am the great I am. Yes, I do see you. And his hand is always extended down to us. But I wonder today if our hands extend up as a submitted posture of I need you to rescue me. Not just back then, but all the time and every moment because he's worth declaring our rescuer. So friends, will you pray with me? And then we are going to head into worship. Our greatest rescuer. God, thank you so much that you love us and love to rescue us. Thank you that you are the king of kings, Jesus, reigning in majesty, that you were specifically sent and that you were the necessary sacrifice for us so that we could clearly have life and life to the full with you forever and ever and ever. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that your love is specific. Thank you that your love is necessary. Thank you that your love brings clarity. And so God, today, we want to worship you because of your rescuing love. Not out of a have to or not because we always do it this way. Because you are worth worshiping. Thank you for your personal desire to be in relationship with us. Come, Lord Jesus, receive all of our praise. Come, Lord Jesus, receive all of our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.